0: This episode deals with a crime committed against a child. Please exercise self-care when choosing to listen. The Great Smoky Mountains National Park, often called the Smokies, covers over half a million acres and straddles the states of North Carolina and Tennessee. The highest peaks include Clingman's Dome and the spectacular Mount LeConte. It has 1,300 kilometres of mountain walking routes, over 100 of which form part of the Appalachian Trail, which stretches all the way from Georgia to Maine. With around 12 million visitors a year, it is the most popular of all the 59 national parks within the United States. It is famed for its breathtaking views and idyllic campsites. The Martin family enjoyed spending time in the great outdoors. Their tradition was that every Father's Day, the men in the family would head into the mountains for a weekend of camping and hiking. On the 13th of June 1969, William, or Bill Martin, an architect by trade, together with his sons Dennis, aged six, and Douglas, nine, left their home in Knoxville, Tennessee, and made the one-and-a-half-hour journey to Cades Cove in the Smokies. The two youngest Martin siblings, a girl and a boy, stayed at home with their mother Violet, but Clyde Martin, Bill's father, joined his son and grandsons on the excursion. It was an especially big occasion for six-year-old Dennis, as it was his first night camping out in the wild, and he had been looking forward to this rite of passage for some time. When they arrived at the Cades Cove Visitor Centre, they parked their vehicle, strapped their packs to their backs, and started the 17km track east to Russell Field Campsite, where they planned on staying the night. They hiked along the Ladbatter Ridge, which ran up the last side of Anthony Creek. Six-year-old Dennis was able to keep up the pace of his older brother and the two adults, and the hike took approximately four and a half hours. They set up camp and shared a meal around the campfire. They all slept well after a long day walking. The following morning, the Martins collected up their gear and set off for the Spence Field campground, which was only a little over three kilometres to the east. The North Carolina-Tennessee state border runs through the field. The north of the campsite lies in North Carolina and the south in the Volunteer State. Many hiking trails converge at Spence Field and the Appalachian Trail passes straight through. The Martins arrived around 4pm and set up base at a shelter at the west end of the site. Here they met up with another family as they had planned in advance. This family was also called Martin, although they were not related. The second Martin family was from Huntsville, Alabama, and consisted of at least one adult, a Dr. C. Martin and two boys. The children were soon playing together, and the adults sat down in a grassy patch, southwest of the Antony Creek trailhead, to chat and enjoy some rest. It was an idyllic and peaceful setting. Seeing the adults sitting down, the boys thought they would have a little fun and play a prank on their grown-ups. The four decided to try and sneak behind the group of adults with the idea of jumping out and surprising them. The adults cottoned on to what the boys were planning. Either they overheard the boys, or the children were not subtle enough in their movements. Regardless, they worked out what was afoot. The four boys decided to split up, to complete their mission, instead of dividing into pairs, Douglas and the two friends went as a three, and Dennis was left on his own. The reason for this was that Dennis had on a bright red t shirt, and the other boys feared he would be too easy to spot against the green of the trees. William Martin and the other adults saw Douglas and the two other boys head southwest to come up behind them. Dennis went the other way to the northwest, to come from the other way, his red t shirt disappearing into the foliage. The time was four thirty PM. After a minute or so, Douglas and the two friends leapt out from the bushes, with loud exclamations to surprise the grown ups. Although the adults knew it was coming, they played along, acting suitably shocked. The group turned to their other side, expecting to perform their gasps of horror again when Dennis appeared. Except he didn't jump out. They waited, running their eyes across the tree line, but there was no sign of the six-year-old. After maybe three to five minutes, Bill realised something wasn't right and panic began to set in. Not knowing what to do, He simply started running. Persons Unknown is a true crime podcast dedicated to unsolved murders and disappearances. The podcast is based in Wales, UK, and covers cases from Wales, the rest of the UK and the wider world. New episodes are released every other Monday. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Persons Unknown Podcast. For a list of sources, please see the episode notes on your app. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review, and you can help others get to hear about Persons Unknown by sharing and recommending on social media. Thank you so much for listening. Now back to this week's case. Bill ran northwest on the Appalachian Trail for one and a half kilometres towards Little Bald Mountain. Examining the map, Little Bald Mountain is east of Spence Field, but it looks like the track heads northwest before bending round towards the northeast. There he stopped to catch his breath. He had seen no tracks on the ground, and believing his son couldn't have gone any further with just a three to five minute head start, Bill returned the way he had come. He arrived back at Spence Field, where the family friend, Dr. Martin, informed Bill. There was still no sign of his missing son. Bill then headed back to Russell Field, where they had camped the first night. He used the A1 trail they had walked along earlier that day. Bill shouted his son's name as he rushed along, but never received a reply. He made it all the way to their first camping spot, then turned around and headed back to Spence Field. Dennis was nowhere to be seen. By 7.30pm, Bill was back at Spence Field and increasingly worried, as it was getting dark. Sunset that day was a little after 8pm. At this time, a husband and wife arrived at Spence Field, who had hiked from Boat Mountain. The woman's name is not known, but the man's name is given in full in the park ranger report. I'll just refer to him by his first name, Terry. Terry and his wife were naturalists and had driven their jeep up a dirt track to Boat Mountain and then walked the remaining two kilometres to Spence Field. They had not seen the boy or anything out of the ordinary. Another hiker named Roger, who had come up from Russell Field, was also quizzed by Bill. But the man had not seen or heard anything. Terry and his wife took Bill back to their jeep at Boat Mountain and drove him to the main road leading to Cades Cove, where there was a park ranger station. During all this, Clyde Martin, Bill's father and Dennis's grandfather, had been making his way on foot from Spence Field to the ranger station at Cades Cove. I assumed nine-year-old Douglas Martin remained with the family friend, Dr. C. Martin and his two sons at the campsite. Clyde arrived at the ranger station shortly before 8.30pm to report his grandson missing. It couldn't have been much later when Bill arrived. While Clyde stayed at the station to complete the missing persons report, Park Ranger Nielsen took Bill back up to Spence Field ...in his four-wheel drive. On the way they passed quite a few hikers and people fishing. They were all asked about the little boy... ...but no one had seen anything. I am not sure if contact details were taken from any of these people. It was around this time that a storm moved in... ...and the rain began lashing down. The temperature dropped to 10 degrees Celsius overnight... ...which was unusually cold for that time of year. This obviously increased everyone's anxiety... ...as little Dennis wasn't adequately clothed or equipped to deal with such weather. Despite the conditions, park rangers and family members searched around the area... ...where Dennis was last seen throughout the night. At five the next morning, Chief Ranger Sneddon officially sent out a search party... This consisted of 30 park service staff and around 240 volunteers. Members from the Smoky Mountain Hiking Club were drafted in to help, as they knew the area and the potential hazards it contained. 71 Green Berets, who were on a training exercise in western North Carolina, were also called upon to aid efforts to find Dennis. A description was given of Dennis, his full name was Dennis Lloyd Martin. He was known as Denny by family and friends. The little boy was said to be 121 centimeters, or 4 feet tall and weighed 25 kilograms. His date of birth was the 20th of June 1962. He was just days away from turning 7. His hair was wavy and dark brown and he had dark brown eyes with long eyelashes. He was last seen wearing the bright red T-shirt that I have already mentioned, as well as green shorts and low-cut Oxford boating shoes with a flat heel. Throughout Sunday, 15th of June, the many streams and rivers in the vicinity were searched. The amount of rain that had fallen had considerably swelled the watercourses, so this task proved very difficult. Around 75 centimeters of rainwater poured down over the previous night. Eagle Trail, which runs south from Spencefield, had not been explored the previous evening, and was now searched thoroughly. 24 hours after Dennis had vanished, there were still no clues as to the boys' whereabouts, and local media outlets were beginning to get wind of what was happening. It wasn't until Monday morning that sent-hounds were brought in but because of all the rain that had fallen, they were unable to pick up a trail. The fact this decision was delayed for so long after Dennis was reported missing was later heavily criticised by the Martin family. The family owned a German shepherd dog called Lady, which was particularly close to Dennis. The idea was suggested for Lady to have a little pack strapped to her with provisions and a plastic raincoat lady could be released into the woods in the hope her strong bond with Dennis would lead her to him. Ultimately, this idea never materialised, as too long a time had passed, and any scent would have dispersed. Helicopters were also dispatched, but fog seriously hampered their efforts, and they were unable to get off the ground until 11am on Monday the 16th of June. Even then, visibility was impaired. After a few days the search team increased further, with the inclusion of the Air National Guard, Coast Guard and the Scouts. Soon there were well over a thousand people scouring the mountainside looking for Dennis. In hindsight this may have hampered the search. Quite a few reports of the case are now critical of the haphazard way the search was conducted, particularly in the early stages. Many clues may have been missed as there was little organisation or coordination of the volunteer effort. People overlap in search zones, and Dennis's tracks may have been destroyed in the fervor to find him. Similar circumstances today would witness a very different search operation. Two men who were searching an area called West Prong. Did discover what looked like a pair of child's footprints. This location is maybe a four hour hike north of Spence Field. One of the prints had a tread which looked similar to the Oxford style boating shoe Dennis was wearing. The other print was barefoot, so it appeared the child had lost one shoe. Dennis's parents examined the print but believed it was too large to belong to their son it was put down as being made by one of the many young scouts who were involved in the search. Though this has been disputed, as there was no record of the scout's search in that area. Besides, the children involved in the search were older and bigger than Dennis, and would have left larger footprints. A shoe and a sock were also found during the search, but they were reportedly never confirmed as belonging to Dennis. This is the second case in a row on Persons Unknown, the first being the unsolved murder of Iris Watkins, where the pronouncements of mediums and spiritualists were influential in the case. The Martin family, and Bill in particular, were very open to the suggestions and predictions given by people who claimed to have psychic gifts. The following predictions by mediums were checked out and various locations were searched, based on the information given. A spiritualist named Jean Dixon from Washington, D.C. said that Dennis's body could be found very near to where he was last seen playing. She believed Dennis had walked downhill from Spence Field. He did not stumble or fall. At some point he turned left at a 40-50 to 50 degree angle and headed back up the slope, before eventually reversing and going down the mountainside. His body was near some shrubbery, but was on flat, open ground. A Mrs. Schwaller from Michigan contacted the search party headquarters at Cades Cove to say she believed she had a dream that revealed to her where Dennis was. Apparently in the past she had dreamt things that seemed to accurately foretell future events. Mrs. Schwaller said the little boy was eight kilometres from where he was last seen. He was by a stream near a waterfall, and the area was surrounded by white pine trees. Another medium, Harold Sherman from Los Angeles, claimed that Dennis's body was a little over three and a half kilometres from where he was last seen. He said Dennis had died following a fall from a high place. Dennis' body could be found caught in bushes. The claims of Jeffrey Owens from Tennessee were also looked into. Owens said he had been having dreams about a lost boy. He saw the child lying on a hill behind a log. The child then got up and moved down the hill on his belly for about one and a half kilometres to get himself a drink from a stream. One man, Billy Noland, who claimed to be a psychic interpreter, travelled to meet with the family on the 25th of June. He even went on to the mountain itself in an attempt to connect himself with what had happened there. The Martin family were thankful for all these predictions and seemed to welcome people attempting to assist in this way. I'm not sure whether the family were open to clairvoyance and the like before Dennis went missing, or whether it was something they put their trust in during this period of immense stress and worry. The Park Service was less enthusiastic about these suggestions and offers of help. Tips were also coming in from more traditional sources. Journalist Carson Brewer of the Knoxville News Sentinel called the National Park Service after being contacted by an anonymous woman. She said they should be looking for Dennis in the trees and treetops, rather than the ground. It was unclear what the reasoning was behind this suggestion. A phone call came in to the Cades Cove store situated near the campsite. A caller, who did not give their name, said the search party could find Dennis in a hole near Spence Field. The hole was between two bushes and had fern growing out of it. All these predictions, suggestions and tips were checked and rechecked, but nothing came of any of them. Six-year-old Dennis had some slight learning difficulties. At school, he was in what was referred to at the time as special education group. In the National Park Service report, Dennis is said to have had a developmental age of around six months younger than his chronological age. His father described his personality as quiet and a little shy. These two factors meant Bill feared that even if Dennis did hear members of the search party calling for him, he may not respond, even if they were saying his name. This has happened in other situations involving young children who are lost. To try and counteract this, Bill went up in a helicopter with a bullhorn to call for Dennis the hope being that if he was hiding somewhere, the sound of his father's voice would bring him out. The idea failed to work, as it was soon discovered that the loudspeaker could not be heard on the ground over the rotor blades of the helicopter. It wasn't until seven days after Dennis disappeared that roadblocks were set up around Blount County. Sheriff deputies used these stops to ask drivers if they had seen anything that might help them find Dennis. The local police had to shut the road to Cage Cove completely, as the place was becoming overrun with onlookers intrigued by the mystery of the missing six-year-old. Despite this measure, the authorities struggled to cope with the volume of people who continued to flock to the area, eager to find out more. Just as the last vestiges of hope were disappearing... A report came in on the 24th of June that a young boy wearing a red t-shirt and green pair of shorts had been spotted walking around the perimeter of Kay's Cove campsite. Unfortunately, it was a cruel coincidence. The boy, named Michael, was camping there with his parents. The police asked his parents if they could refrain from dressing him in the red shirt for the remainder of their stay there. Another potential sighting of Dennis was called in by a woman from Townsend, Tennessee, who reported seeing an unaccompanied young boy by a waterfall at Alkmont. This location is about a seven or eight hour hike from where Dennis was last seen. Yet again, the sighting turned out to be a red herring. The boy named Joe was confirmed as being a young resident of a nearby trailer park. By the 11th day of the search, the number of volunteers involved in combing the wooded mountains had dwindled to about 50. The searches were first reduced, and then on the 29th of June, the Operation HQ, which had been set up on Spence Field, officially closed down. Just before it did, the rescue team checked out a report of a decaying odour near the boundary of the national park. It turned out to be the carcass of a dog. Incidents like this happened several times during the search, but the smell always turned out to be a dead, small animal. From early on in the search, there was a difference in opinion between the National Park Service and the Martin family in terms of what had happened to little Dennis. The authorities believed that in all likelihood, Dennis had simply wandered off and gotten disorientated, he had then succumbed to the elements, and likely died of exposure, particularly as the weather had been so unseasonably bad. Another very disturbing prospect was that Dennis had been attacked by a bear, or even wild pigs. Bears were in the area, and one had been caught just two weeks previously near one of the local campsites. The park rangers were able to lure the bear with corn, which very fact meant the bear was obviously ravenous. Bears would not usually be tempted by such a meagre offering, but this animal was underweight and underfed. Perhaps the starving bear took the unusual decision to attack the child out of desperation to eat. Of course, there was no evidence at all to indicate this had happened the Martin family struggled to believe that any of these scenarios could have happened within the time frame that Dennis disappeared. The idea of Dennis getting lost or attacked by a wild animal may have made sense to them if more time had elapsed before they were aware he was missing. It had only been a matter of minutes, estimated to be between three and five, between Dennis disappearing into the bushes and the family starting to search for him. The family believed the more likely outcome was that their son had been abducted. As a result, the Martins raised a $5,000 reward for information leading to the safe return of their son. That's the equivalent of $40,000 today. There was one person who was involved in the search that the Martin family were particularly suspicious of. They made their concerns known to the park rangers. The person in question was a man who worked as a contractor in Dandridge, Tennessee. I will refer to him by the initial R. It is not known what made the family wary of R. Perhaps it was something he said, or the way he acted around them. It was enough to pass on their distrust of the man to the park rangers. The family believed R may have been working with another person, described as a woman from Florida. Though the family said they did not know for what purposes they would want their son. A theory was put forward, I'm not sure exactly by who, that Dennis had been kidnapped by mistake. The intended victim had been one of the children Dennis was playing with. If you remember, they also had the surname Martin, and I believe they were quite well off. This was looked into. The FBI were contacted, but said they could not justify the cost of a large-scale investigation into Dennis's case. Without concrete evidence, there was no grounds to warrant their involvement. On the 14th of June, the Saturday Dennis vanished. The Key family, from Carthage, Tennessee, were enjoying an afternoon wildlife spotting. In the Smoky Mountains National Park. They were exploring an area near Rowan's Creek, just over eleven kilometers from Spence Field. The last place Dennis was seen. As the family moved through the woods, they suddenly heard a loud scream that sounded like a child in distress or pain. Shortly after this happened, the father, Harold Key, aged forty five, and his young son, saw a figure moving quickly through the trees. At first sight, the son thought it was a bear, but soon realised it was in fact a large man. Many reports also state that the man looked like he was holding something over his shoulder. Some even say the object on the man's shoulder matched the colour of the clothing worn by Dennis. This was a red t-shirt and green shorts. The time frame given for this sighting is a little vague, between 5 and 7pm. The official missing person report states the time Dennis was last seen as 4.30pm. Harold and his family didn't really think much of the incident and returned home later that evening completely oblivious to the news about Dennis Martin. It was some weeks later that Harold Key brought this information forward. When he did so, he suggested the man may have been a moonshiner, someone illegally brewing liquor under the cover of the woods. The FBI did meet with Harold Key to question him further, but at the time the Martin family were not aware of this. They only found out about the meeting when the story began to appear in local newspapers. Bill Martin was furious that he had not been kept in the loop and demanded to know about what Harold Key and his son had seen. The FBI said they had checked it out, but there was little evidence that the incident had anything to do with Dennis's disappearance. They believed Harold Key was too vague about the timing of the incident and the location was too far from the spot Dennis was last seen. They concluded there wouldn't have been enough time for a man to travel that distance carrying a child. Doubt remains about this assertion. A 2009 article in the Knoxville News Sentinel featured an interview with retired park ranger Dwight McCarter. He wrote a book called Lost, which gave details of many of the searches he had worked on, including that of Dennis Martin. He believes it is most likely that Dennis became lost and succumbed to the elements. The small size of Dennis could easily mean his body was missed by searchers. The area is covered in thick rhododendron and laurel thickets that could easily prevent the detection of a child's body. There are also many water sources, the noise of which could comfortably drown out the calling of a child. However, McCarter has always kept an open mind about the case. McCarter states that the location where the scream was heard and the man sighted by Harold Key was downhill from Spence Field and the distance could have been covered within the time frame. He himself walked the route from the campsite at Spence Field to Rowan's Creek in 90 minutes. Bill Martin, Dennis's father, said he also did the same trip in a similar time. This sighting has fed numerous conspiracy theories about the disappearance of Dennis Martin. The first being that Dennis was taken by a wild man belonging to a community of feral humans that live deep in the woods. Such people are sometimes referred to as Little Big Feet, a sort of human version of the cryptozoological creature Bigfoot, these groups are humans that have shunned mainstream society for generations. They have lived well for so long; they are said to be beast-like in their behavior and appearance. It is said that some of these groups have developed their own language, and even have heightened sense of smell. They are adept at camouflage and hide from the sight of average folk only venturing into more populated areas to steal livestock to eat. It is also believed that these feral humans engage in acts of cannibalism, kidnapping and devouring stray hikers or people venturing to the backwaters for escape and adventure. A second link conspiracy is that the authorities, the federal government, state government and the military, are aware of these enclaves of feral humans, but keep knowledge of it under wraps. Locals are in on the plot too, as their livelihood is dependent on the money brought into the area by tourism. In the case of Dennis Martin, it has been put forward that the marines who were in the area on manoeuvres were not there by coincidence, but because they had been brought in to deal with a potential threat posed by the wild group of humans, living deep in the Smokies. When they were engaged in the search, their job wasn't primarily to find Dennis, but to hunt down and kill the feral humans living in the area. The small but important detail that the soldiers involved in the search were not armed rarely gets acknowledged by proponents of this theory. No hard evidence has ever been brought forward to support the idea of cannibalistic tribes of mountain people existing anywhere in the United States. The idea that a whole community of such people could live undetected, even in 1969, seems highly unlikely. Kay's Cove is crowded with tourists throughout the year, particularly during the summer months. It is not as remote a location as it may seem. Many of these rumours and stories come from bits of folklore, stereotypes and prejudice towards people who live in these rural locations. Social media, particularly TikTok, is currently awash with such tales, but there is no proof that it is anything other than a plotline from a straight-to-DVD horror film. While the idea of mountain cannibals does seem a stretch, there are individuals across the United States who choose to live off-grid. There were tales that a handful of people existed in this way in the Smokies at the time Dennis disappeared, having made their home in the woods before the establishment of the National Park in 1934. Former park ranger Dwight McArthur, speaking to Knox News in 2011, said there was one such individual known to live in the woods near Kate's Cove, in 1969. The man lived off the land, and was sometimes spotted moving around the park, and often wore bearskin clothing. In 1973, four years after Dennis Martin's disappearance, Smoky Mountain Park ranger Charles Hughes was out doing his rounds, checking that people fishing in the area held the requisite licence. He was in the Catalucci Valley, on the North Carolina side of the National Park, at a place called Rough Fork Creek. Here, Ranger Hughes came upon a dishevelled man with a heavy, thick beard who was fishing with a fly rod. The man did not look like a tourist or one of the people who regularly fished at the creek. When he was asked his name by Ranger Hughes, the man replied that he didn't have one and that he had lived in the woods his whole life. When asked to produce a valid fishing licence, the man reached into his coat pocket and pulled out a pistol. Ranger Hughes leapt on the man and they fought for the gun. He was able to punch the unknown man in the face and flee to his jeep to call for backup on the radio. The bearded stranger pursued Ranger Hughes and broke one of the windows of the park jeep. Ranger Hughes was forced to race off in the vehicle. He returned later with blood hands, but the strange man was never tracked down. There were reported sightings of the bearded world man that lived in the woods near Cade’s Cove for years after this incident. The tale became a local legend, and over time has meshed with the story of Dennis Martin’s disappearance. Another possible theory is that Harold Key and his son were witnesses of an abduction by a person who took Dennis somewhere off the mountain. or witnesses to a person fleeing a crime scene. In 2016, former police officer and true crime author Michael Bouchard met with Harold Key to go over his remembrances of the day. Key was now 90 years old but still remembered the events of the 14th of June, 1969. Their conversation is detailed in Bochard's book, Forever Searching. In the interview, Harold Key gave details that were not widely reported in 1969. He said he saw an unoccupied white vehicle, he doesn't specify what type, parked in the Sea branch region of the National Park, near Rowan's Creek, where the family would walk in. Harold Key and his family had walked around 250 to 450 metres from the car park into the woods. It was here that they heard a scream. Key said it sounded like a child in distress. They then heard a second scream, which sounded like a child in pain. Key then saw a white middle-aged male on his own, Walking quickly. When the man noticed the Key family and saw he was being watched, he increased his speed further still. He described the man as looking nervous and sweating. He saw the man enter the white vehicle before driving off at speed towards Cades Cove. He commented to his wife at the time that the man looked like he was thinking strange thoughts. In 2016, Key did not mention noticing the man carrying anything on his shoulder, and certainly didn't say that he had seen a child with the man. Several years after Dennis's disappearance, the exact date is not known. An unidentified man was illegally foraging for Ginzang on the mountainside, about 4.8 kilometres downhill from Spence Field, where Dennis was last seen in an area known as Tremont's Big Hollow. From what I can make out, this location is in the direction from where the child's footprints were found. It is however, four and a half kilometres from where Harold Key reported hearing the scream of a child. While rummaging through the undergrowth, he came across a human skeleton. From its small size, he believed it was that of a child. At the time, the man failed to notify the authorities as he feared he would get in trouble for taking the ginseng or even that he would be blamed for whatever had happened to the child. He eventually did confide in someone about the find when in 1985 he told park ranger McCarter about what he had seen. McCarter went out to the location with a team of 30 staff to look for the skeleton. They found nothing. Either the man had been lying, though he had no reason to do this, or wild animals may have dispersed the remains. The Martin family never stopped searching for Dennis. Clyde Martin, Dennis's grandfather, returned to the mountainside often to look for him. The years slowly passed, and soon became decades. In 1993, a man searching for his birth parents... ...contacted the Smoky Mountains Park Service... ...and said he believed he may be Dennis Martin. The claim was investigated... ...but was swiftly ruled out as a possibility. There are three other missing persons cases... ...in the Smoky Mountains National Park. 16-year-old Teresa Gibson... ...who disappeared in 1976. Polly Melton, 58, who went missing in 1981 and 24-year-old Derek King, who disappeared in 2012. There is no evidence that these cases are linked, but they are perhaps part of the reason why conspiracy theories linger over Dennis Martin's case and the Smoky Mountains National Park. That Dennis vanished in the space of a few minutes defies explanation. It seems inconceivable that he would walk away of his own volition. The fact that no remains have ever been discovered means there has always been hope that he may be still alive. I have seen missing posters with an age-progressed image of Dennis. I can't imagine what living with this must have been like for Bill and Violet Martin, Dennis's siblings and his other family members. The official Park Service report of the search certainly seems to favour the idea that Dennis most likely became disorientated and perished somewhere on the mountain. The report hints that talk of abduction on behalf of the family stems from their inability to come to terms with the tragedy of losing their son. They could not let him go. This may be the most probable outcome, but there are enough details in this terribly sad story that throw doubt on that assumption. This is why I made the decision to cover this case, and why the matter of Dennis Martin's disappearance remains open-ended.